coming through. Okay, well, good morning. Um, happy to be here today. Um, one of the things I like about working at the... Too loud? Okay. One of the things I like about working at the Veterans Hospital in Hines, Illinois, which is just west of Chicago near the Brookfield Zoo, is I get a chance to talk to veterans about their experience in the military. Yes, I, we treat them, we take care of them, but I always make it a point to thank them for their service. But I always ask them, well, what did you do? Where did you serve? Um, and I really enjoy that. It's, and, and they seem to also appreciate that. And last month I had the, the honor, and I do mean honor, of admitting a 91-year-old gentleman to the hospital um, for pneumonia and some other things. And he was a World War II veteran. If you know anything about World War II veterans, they're few and far between now. We're losing that treasure um, as time marches on. And so I stopped and I took time to talk to him and I was, was kind of impressed to learn that he had actually gone through Omaha Beach on D-Day. Um, not the first wave, the second wave, which is probably why he's still alive today. But I was a little bit taken back. And if you know your World War II history or you've seen Saving Private Ryan, Omaha Beach and D-Day could have been probably the bloodiest days for the U.S. troops. And so I was really excited and, and eager to talk with him. And so one Saturday, I had gotten all my work done. I'd gotten my notes in, my orders in, and had extra time at the hospital. And so I went down to his room, and I pulled up a chair, and I said, Mr. Borowski, name has been changed to protect the innocent. Mr. Borowski, can I, can I ask you about your experience in World War II? Would you mind telling me, you know, what was it like? Not every veteran wants to talk about their military experience, so I want to always give that deference. And he said, sure. So... He graciously um, let me sit down and talk to him, and he told me about the night before, sleeping in like triple stack bunks in England, waiting to cross the channel, the dropping of the barge and his personnel jumping into the surf and running with terror and focus to try to get to the beach, and him like rallying his squad as they, as they secured the beach and moved on. He took shrapnel to the left leg, and on and on he talked. He told me stories about... Months later, as they were uh, marching inward into France, how he had a grenade fight with a, with a German pilot. Much like you and I might have a snowball fight, they were actually tossing grenades at each other. He told me how they were pinned down in the woods, and they found two German tanks that were holding, and he went back and got some troops and, and some smaller U.S. tanks to come around behind and disable him. Clear up until where he got shot in that same left leg in the Ardennes. He tied off his leg took his morphine and passed out, thinking he was probably going to die. He woke up, bouncing in the back of a Jeep, headed back to HQ to be honorably discharged with two Purple Hearts and a Bronze Star for Valor. Wow, they were great stories. I mean, I literally just sat there, son, and I, I just had to ask him some questions. I said, Mr. Borowski, didn't you, did you, were you ever just afraid and frustrated that you were there, that you didn't get to have any say about it? what you were doing, that this was not the life that you had envisioned. He said, you know, we had a real clear sense of what we were doing was right. This was evil. And, you know, that's often a characteristic of World War II vets. They feel really good about what they did. That's a complicated psychology with other conflicts, but they had a real clear sense that they were stopping evil. And I said, yeah, but I'm just curious. You know, weren't you ever, like, this is the prime of your life? Weren't you ever, like a little bit frustrated, like, hey, I was giving up my opportunity to go to college or a sweetheart. And he said, he said, well, you know, I didn't have to go to World War II. I said, no, what do you mean? He's like, well, I was, I was too young. When I went to the recruiter, 
I, 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 was, I was underage. And the recruiter said, you know, you're too young. You can go home. He's like, no, no, no. I, I really want to go, which was a common thing. And my own grandfather went in too early, and that wasn't a problem. He says, well, you know, I'm looking here, and you're actually the fourth son in your family. And his two oldest brothers had already been deployed. And the recruiter said, you know, you'll never have to go because, you know, your, your third brother will get called up and you actually won't go. The government deems that too great a sacrifice for our family. He says, no, I know, I know. But you see, my brother's married and has a family, so I think it'd be better if I go. So he went. And young Mr. Borowski became Sergeant Borowski, and, and, and that's the story. And I think this morning, it's, it's telling. This is, a, this is a guy who surrendered his qualifications. He had a free pass to get out of the greatest conflict probably this planet's ever seen. And he yielded that. He gave it up because of something that he saw as worth more. Our scripture passage today, Paul, a hero of our faith, I think is calling us to surrender those things that we would hold on to to save our life. Much like Mr. Borowski could have saved his own life, but he surrendered those things and went on to serve and suffer and maybe save his brother's life. Would you pray with me real quick before we dive deeper into the word? Heavenly Father, thank you for this this morning. Thank you that we're all here. Help us to lay down our defenses, Lord, that we use to keep you at arm's length. Father, I pray that you would connect our heads and our hearts right now in a more profound way that we might fully submit to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so you've been following along with Philippians. This is Paul's letter to a congregation, a church that he has a deep affection for. He's got a lot of familiarity here. And suddenly in chapter 3, he has an abrupt warning. It's really abrupt. And um, without going into the details about that abruptness, he is saying, watch out. There's a false teaching that's coming. It might come your way. And that false teaching is there are Christians, Jewish Christians, and he's using that not as a pejorative term, but as like that's their tradition that they're bringing into Christianity. They're taking old covenant elements and they're mixing it with the new covenant to try to convince people that that's the true covenant. And so Paul's saying, watch out. And there might be some context here for Philippi that's helpful. Scholars think that there probably wasn't a large Jewish contingent in Philippi. In fact, there's no record of a synagogue. And Paul's pattern of going to a synagogue first in a city to evangelize and then to more of the public square doesn't happen in Philippi. So the fact that there may be fewer Jewish Christians, maybe that's why Philippi would be vulnerable here. Right? Someone coming in is like, hey, you know, you guys are Christians, but, you know, you're not as connected to the, the roots and the historicity here. You actually don't look like the true covenant. So Paul's trying to warn them that, look, taking things like circumcision, parts of that old Mosaic law, and trying to lay that over your faith in Christ, this new life you have in Christ, that's a real danger. That's a corruption. And what's really dangerous about these kind of teachings is that it's not an outright rejection saying, no, it's not about Christ. It's not this clear, outright rejection. It's this subtle layering or twisting or shifting, which is when it's really dangerous. Because it's not, oh, I'm not rejecting. We're adding meaning. We're making it more significant. It's more spiritual. But Paul very quickly says, well, this is, in fact, a rejection. That's a misguided notion that it's okay to do this. It's either the righteousness of Christ or the righteousness of our own. And why does he take it to the question of righteousness? Well, that's because the Old Covenant, the law, was the only path to righteousness prior to Christ. And so he's very clearly 
calling our attention to the fact it's not just about spirituality and piety here. It's about substituting the righteousness of Christ for righteousness of our own. And this is still alive and well today. Right? It's not very far. You don't have to look very far to find someone saying, well, you know, that was cultural in the New Testament. We don't really have to do that today. Or we know now that this is the way reality really is, and so they were misinformed or inadequately informed. So this teaching, this idea of um, mixing the covenant of the New Testament, the righteousness of Christ with our own righteousness, is still alive and well today. And this is really easy for Paul to deal with on an abstract level, right? Because someone's trying to pull a trump card of like, hey, you guys aren't Jewish enough? And Paul, Paul's kind of like the guy at the dinner party. Oh, did someone say Jewish Christian? Yeah, I, no, I got that covered. Yeah, let me tell you about being a Jewish Christian. And he goes on to list his Jewish resume, right? And it, and it is significant what he's saying. He did adhere to the law, right? He meets all those qualifications. He was circumcised on the eighth day. You know, the tribe of Benjamin, it's a favored tribe of Rachel. You know, it's not a tribe from Leah. It's a pure tribe. It didn't intermingle. Jerusalem is in the territory of Benjamin. You know, he's, he's like, look, I got the DNA. I'm ethnically Jewish. A member of the Pharisee, Pharisee sect, right? Very esteemed. They were hardcore. They was recognized by the common populace. And not only were they, like, hardcore and given deference for that, but they were actually, there's some notion that they were actually able to do interpretation rather than just repeat the word of God. And then he was a zealot, which is a very esteemed tradition in the Jewish people. And so Paul's saying, look, I got all the cards, and he trumps them, right? He just lays down his trump card. He does that merely for the purpose of disabusing this abstract teaching of, like, you need to be more Jewish. Because he's like, look, I'm, I'm, I'm as Jewish as I get, and when I encountered the resurrection the resurrected Christ, it was all a house of cards, and it fell down. It's not worth anything. But Paul very quickly switches the conversation, lest anyone presume that he takes that trump card and holds on to it as a form of validation. So he folds it. He says, but that's not what it's about. Look, I can, I can tell you it's not what it's about because I've got that authority, but it has nothing. It has no value. And that's what Paul does. He takes us deeper. He very quickly says, yeah, there is this abstract teaching of this righteousness of our own, but actually this righteousness of our own exists in each of our own hearts, including mine, such that I consider all these good things about me as garbage for fear that they would unseat the righteousness of Christ. We do this, right? We have these things in our own heart that we hold on to, that are our own righteousness. For me, when I was in college, oh, Christian college, you know, yay me, there was this sense of spiritual superiority because I came from a non-denominational background. And I thought denominational affiliations were distractions. These were layers. These were adding on. And so, ironically, that became my righteousness. I think now they say non-denom. It wasn't a phrase for me back then, but I, I kind of like that because it reminds me that it's a badge. Our word is a badge. Now, I could wear Anglicanism as a badge. That could be my right. But we do this, right? What is it in your heart that you hold on to, that you look to to give you confidence 
or assurance that you have a relationship with Christ? Is it your job? You know, oh, I don't, my job's not about money. My job's about people. Is it the ministry you're involved in? Well, my ministry is very important or spiritual. Is it where you live? Oh, I live in an area where there's, there's poor people. What is it that's externally manifesting in your life that you're holding too tightly on as an assurance, as some sort of proof that you have the righteousness of Christ? As soon as we start looking to our own life for that validation, it's a righteousness of our own. And Paul says that's not compatible with the righteousness of Christ, which is a gift from God. Why does this happen? What's going on here? Why, are we, why is the human heart so prone to exchanging the righteousness of Christ for righteousness of our own? I mean, let's go back to Philippi. They were talking about circumcision. People were vulnerable to this. That kind of baffles my mind. It wasn't like they're saying, hey, pray three times a day. That's, that's key. I could, I could get on board for that. I could see the utility of that, but if someone said, hey, cut off a piece of yourself, how is it that this is working? You know, you'd think that that would fall flat on its face. If you walk up and say, well, if you really want to be righteous, you know, cut off a piece of your body. But it does. It's true. People do this all the time. Why? I think because it's easier. It's easier. It provides a false sense of security. Right? We, we want to know that we're going to heaven. We want to know that we belong. It's like, it's like which, which is easier to do, a checklist or a relationship? How many of you have driven by a park in the summer? You're like driving in your car and you see like, hey, look, there's like 30 people with neon green t-shirts on and they're all carrying some food. And there's like a cudgel balloon, there's kids running. What is that? It's a family reunion. But if you didn't know that was a family reunion, you're like, hey, look, it's a party. Hey, I'd like to go. Uh, looks like I need a green t-shirt and some food. Let's go get a green t-shirt and the food and go to this party. And you'd show up and you're like, hey, I got my green t-shirt. I got my food. I'm like, oh, this is actually a family reunion. It's not based on that. It's not based on your checklist. It's based on relationship. Are you a member of the family? Are you connected? Which is easier? The righteousness of our own is based on the, what we define. What are the criteria we're looking for? What is it that you see in your life or what do I see in your life that I think does or does not match up with Christ? Whereas Paul says in Philippians... The righteousness of God is a gift. It's given. And so you have to receive it. You don't own it. You don't get to take it. You don't get to decide who else gets it. You have to receive it. It's a miracle, actually. It's a working of the Holy Spirit. You can't control it. You don't get to define it, and it's very unsettling for human beings. It's so much easier to say, the way you get to heaven is do A, B, and C, and make sure you don't do X, Y, and Z, versus you get to heaven is receive my son. Give me your heart. Take on his heart. I think this is why the righteousness of our own, as Paul calls it, persists. It actually feels easier. We can breathe a sigh of relief if we see it in ourselves. By the way, have you ever noticed if you're ever feeling self-righteous, or you, this righteousness of our own, it's often triggered by when we're comparing ourselves to someone else. At least it is for me. Whether it's a judgmental thought you have, like, oh, I don't do that. 
or, gosh, I should do that. I should look like that. The righteousness of our own breeds uniformity because uniformity is settling for us. If your spirituality looks a little bit different than mine, uh, then it makes me wonder whether mine's valid. The point is, you're taking your eyes off of Christ and you're either looking at your neighbor or you're taking your eyes off Christ and you're looking at yourself trying to figure out, am I going to be led into the family reunion? We all want to go. We don't want to be left out. But it's hard work to receive the righteousness of God. Not hard work in like efforts, but it's hard to sit with uncertainty. Faith is hard. Checklists are easier. Facts versus faith. It's probably not a good phrase for me to throw around as a scientist, but facts, my life has this fact, this fact, this fact, versus I have faith in Jesus. It's much harder to define this. It's much harder to articulate that. In verse 8 to 9, Paul says, it's surpassing worth of knowing Jesus my Lord, dot, 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 be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. So now we have to move to, okay, this righteousness of Christ, where is he going? We'll look at verse 10. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. It's immediately to the heart of the gospel. Immediately to the passion, the essence of the passion. Death and resurrection. And that's where Paul takes this text, and that's where we are right now. Death and resurrection. It's Lent. What a great topic. We're halfway through. How are you doing? Day 26 out of 47, maybe 46 if you don't count Easter. Good Friday's 19 days away. Are you tired? Are you weary of this Lenten season? Polar vortex aside, Easter's coming. Don't give up. Jesus has walked this path before you. He's walking with you now. But I think we should press into this idea of death and resurrection. Listen to Luke. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Lent is a great time for you to lay down your life, to lay down those things in your heart that you're holding on to provide you with a righteousness of your own. I want to offer something to you that I think is helpful. It's been helpful for me as I try to receive more of the Lord into my life. There's two seasons in the church calendar where we anticipate the arrival of Christ. We're in one of them, Lent, the other one's Advent. These two seasons have a great number of parallels. It's really nourishing to reflect on that, the relationship between Christmas and Easter. I encourage you to do that at some point. But here's one, here's one parallel they share that I think is very helpful as you think about receiving Christ, Christ coming to you, whether as Emmanuel in Advent or Christ the resurrected Christ in Easter, and that is Christ the King. Do you know that the bookend and the front end of those two seasons is when we celebrate kingship? Christ the King Sunday is the last Sunday of the calendar year. It immediately precedes Advent 1. John chapter 12, when Jesus enters Jerusalem immediately before he is to perform the ultimate sacrifice for once and for all, before he executes the office of Savior, he comes as king. And the people recognize that. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. 
Not convinced that kingship is how Christ comes? Seven chapters later, John records the most damning quotation of the mob. They stand before Pilate and say, We have no king but Caesar. Jesus' kingship is critical for us receiving him as Savior. And I want to offer that to you today. As you look to lay down, surrender those things that you might hold on to to save your life. Let Jesus come as king into your heart. It's a hard concept for us. We don't have a good sense of kingship. You know, it kind of offends our sensibilities. Here and now, for whatever reason, it offends our sensibilities. We're educated, we're emancipated, we're independent, we're democratic. This idea of kingship is a little foreign. In fact, I think the closest thing we have to it in our culture might be the military. So let's consider Sergeant Borowski. Let's go back to him. He signed up, willingly submitted to the authority of his commanding officers. He told me about going into that beach. And I said, I, I won't get too graphic here, but he, he talked about his men, his friends, falling beside him. And no one stopped because they were so drilled into them to go and secure the beach at all costs. We don't abdicate decisions in our personal life very often, do we? We like to decide when we're going to eat, where we're going to put our money, where we'll spend our time, what we'll devote our life to. Very rarely do we allow someone else to say that to us, to make those decisions. I want to invite you this morning to come to a place where you surrender and receive a king, the king of Christ. And you might say, well, where, what do I do here? Where do I go from here? I want, to, I want to offer you three vehicles that I think can help usher you towards our Lord. Remember, that's what Paul said, knowing Christ my Lord. So that's an authority term. And here, here can I offer these vehicles to you for now, today, and also as you continue to, to journey in Lent towards Easter. The first one is prayer. Let prayer be a vehicle for you to receive the King. I know you're praying, and I know that this is Lent, and so you're probably praying more than usual, and, but I want to offer this to you. Can you take your supplications and your petitions and, and put, a, put a boundary around them and define, delineate them away? God wants to hear what you need. He wants to hear you ask. He loves to answer your, your request. But can I encourage you to put those to the side for, for a little bit here in Lent and go into prayer with worship and praise? Spend time praying with invitation rather than supplication. Say, Lord, I invite you. Come, come, Lord, in prayer. That's one vehicle I want to offer to you for the rest of Lent. The second one is confession. Praise the Lord that we confess together every day, or every Sunday when we gather together. Are you doing that in your personal life? You don't have to have someone with you, but are you confessing out loud to the Lord? Are you confessing with a friend, a brother, a sister, a pastor, a priest? I encourage you to engage that. It can be a little unsettling, a little vulnerable. It can be shame-filled. Let me encourage you to press through that. Employ the vehicle of confession this Lent. The last vehicle I want to draw you towards is Eucharist the profound mystery that 
is the table where there's the presence of the Lord available to you in a mysterious and powerful way. The sacrament of body and blood, it's not empty. It's not a ritual. The church fathers have called it an, uh, an external sign of it, or a visible sign of an invisible grace. We believe these are bread molecules and wine molecules. But we also believe that there's the power of the resurrection. And so come to the table today, seeking to receive Christ more fully into your heart, and actually bundle these vehicles together. Prayer, confession, the table. Come prayerfully to the table. And maybe today you want to pray before you come to the table with a prayer minister. We have a number available today, extra. I really want you to to think about what in your heart you're holding on to that you've not surrendered. And consider praying with a prayer minister, whether it's a confession or just an invitation. Consider meeting with someone before you come to the table so that you can come to this table with your heart wide open, with the light of Christ shined in every crevice and corner of your heart. Receive Christ the King, the righteousness of Christ, which is durable. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.